Misfit Toys. Welcome to episode 603 with my guest, Susan Kane. Uh, it is good to be back from vacation. Uh, this is our first new episode in about a month. And uh, anybody who's new to the show, I want to I welcome you. I want to say uh, hello. Welcome to anyone having trouble getting out of bed, convinced you're never going to feel happy again. Anybody grinding it out in their parents' basement, smothered by debt. Anybody who can't stop drinking, smoking, cutting, stealing, crying, binging, shooting up, purging, compulsively exercising. Anybody with a good life on paper, plagued by emptiness and a vague feeling that you're not doing life right, that something's missing, you can't name it, you feel guilty for feeling it, welcome. Welcome to the paranoid, the angry, the suicidal, the homicidal. Welcome, damaged, the broken, the wounded, the numb, the lonely, the awkward. Everybody plagued by guilt, shame, jealousy, fear. Welcome traumatized survivors, faking a smile so nobody asks how you're really doing. Welcome to everybody counting the seconds until your partner hits orgasm. To every spouse secretly jerking off, keeping their fantasies to themselves. To everyone looking for love and coming up empty. To everybody settling for less, afraid to make a change. To anyone not ready to forgive but being told by assholes that they should. Welcome to the bullied, the judged, the eggshell walkers. Welcome to all of us who weigh ourselves after we poop. You'd have thought that beast would have weighed more. I would say welcome to the narcissists, but if they agree that they're narcissists, are they really narcissists? Anyway, whoever you are, welcome, and I hope I hope the next hour or two shows you that you're far from alone and that while you, you might not feel hope, it's possible, maybe even probable, maybe likely. I don't know. I'm not a therapist. I cook casseroles for buddy pictures on basic cable for a decade and a half. So what the fuck do I know? I know a little bit. I'm not going to sell myself short. Vacation was fantastic. My girlfriend and I had a great time. That's assuming you rule out the hour and a half that we tried to canoe. Boy, nothing will shatter love like a canoe ride. Holy fuck. We had such fun for the first four minutes. And then... Just 45 minutes going in a circle and people flying past us like like there was a jet engine on their canoes. Just couples just zinging past, big smiles. I asked them how they do it. What's their technique? All right, we got it figured out now. Another half hour of circles. I don't think we got 50 yards from the dock. And my girlfriend, God bless her, she never 
she never once complained? Well, most people don't complain when they're the source of the problem. <laughs> oh, if you're listening, I love you. See, my problem was I had expectations that we were going to move more than 50 yards. And they say there's a, a saying in the recovery rooms, uh, expectations are future resentments growing. And I had an expectation that we were going to get across this lake and go see all the cool stuff that the canoe people told us we were going to see. And, uh, and <laughs> at one point, my girlfriend, I'm in the front of the canoe, she's in the back. And she says, well, maybe we can go see that stream that the guy talked about. And and I, in hindsight, probably shouldn't have said this, but this is what I said and how I said this. I don't see that happening for hours and hours and hours. And then I heard a sniffle behind me. I knew I fucked up. So I apologize. And it's weird when you're in a canoe and you apologize, but you can't turn around. We could have switched places too, but then we would have tipped over. And the thought of trying to drag a canoe uh, all the way to the shore horrified me more than the reality that we were never going to get to see what I wanted to get to see. But I learned that I am not as patient as I think I am, that when I set my mind on something, I lose my sense of humor, and that I can be mean. And as I said, I apologized, and we laugh about it now. And by we, I mean me. I decided when I came back from uh, vacation, it was time to give up video games. And I'm off them now for around two weeks, something like that. And it's it's kind of eerie when you've been doing something where you just repetitively, repetitively feed yourself things that release dopamine and you stop doing it. It's like that feeling when you've had a group of people over at your house and it's really loud and then the last one leaves and you sit down and there's this like really weird silence it's like a heavy silence that feels amazing after quitting video games it's like that silence but instead of it feeling amazing you want to step in front of a train <laughs> no it doesn't it doesn't feel like that but it feels like there's something missing and uh, I'm riding it out. I'm riding it out. I'm hoping I'm going to start woodworking more. Anyway, enough about me. Let's get to some of your surveys. This is from the uh, Voice in Your Head survey filled out by uh, a woman who calls herself Bob Dylan's long-lost child. And uh, to the question, what are some of the things you tell yourself about yourself? I'm a burden. I'm lazy and self-indulgent. I take up too much space. I'm a strain on resources. My mistakes are unforgivable. My only value is my sexual appeal to men. 
I will eventually disappoint everyone. Well, I think a lot of us relate to all of those. Any comments to make the podcast better? Continued updates and anecdotes about Gracie. Gracie, did you hear that? She's trimming her nails. Gracie as well. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey. Uh, filled out by the same person. And uh, their question, are pain and destruction the only ways to motivate a stubborn person to change? Uh, do you believe everyone needs to, quote, find their bottom, unquote? Well, to the first question, are pain and disruption the only ways to motivate a stubborn person to change? I think you have to identify two things. What do you mean by change? Are you talking about giving up addictions or merely stopping behavior? Because you can be dry. You can you can give it up, up an addiction but still not grow. You're just, you know, white-knuckling it as we say. And if you're talking about people outside of addiction, just people in general that need to change, I think people can be motivated by things other than hitting a bottom. I think the love of someone or something uh, can sometimes be enough to motivate a stubborn person to change. But if you're talking about addictions, I think most addicts need to hit some type of a bottom or have some type of moment of clarity to change because addictions are so fucking powerful for something to take its place or to just shake you out of that zombie-like state it needs to it, it needs to be a pretty big earthquake this is from the voice in your head survey uh filled out by that bipolar chick is always manic and some of the things you tell yourself about yourself when I'm manic, I'm an inspiration, a good person, I have lots of money. All those impulses, impulse items suddenly become vital to have. I'm amazing, a great cook. When I'm depressed, I'm a worthless piece of shit. God doesn't love me. I'm a burden for existing. I should just kill myself. My family would be relieved if I was dead. Boy, what a vivid example of, uh, of bipolar. Thank you for sharing that. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by a woman who calls herself LL. Uh, and about her depression, she writes, living in mud, heavy, but comforted by being in it. It's so true, that second part. It's such an odd comfort. Such an odd, because it's so familiar. From the voice in your head survey, filled out by Frosted Pop-Tart. Oof. Oof. Why would you put frosting on a Pop-Tart? Uh, they ask, uh, well, first they list some of the things, the negative things they tell themselves about themselves. Um, themselves. And then I like this, they add, but conversely, there's a voice in me that's also been growing for a while and it says, wow, I am so fucking proud of you. You fed yourself, you exercised, you went to therapy, you are doing so good. You're building strength and doing good things for yourself every day. Good job. You didn't get a lot of help growing up 
and you are doing so good, and you are a kind and soft person. Your mistakes don't define you. It counts that you want to be good, and in due time, this job will be in the past, and you will be doing something that is fulfilling. That is fucking awesome. Thank you for that. It's so refreshing to hear positive stuff. I think we've we've been so burned out in our culture by the empty self-love platitudes that kind of make our stomach turn that it it kind of gives a bad rap to the to the genuine uh nice things that we should be saying to ourselves. I don't know if I can find examples of it, but don't don't pressure me. Don't you push me. This is from the voice in your head filled out by Troy. And Troy says, you have always been and always will be mediocre. Accomplishing the bare minimum is the most you can expect to achieve. You are invisible and you exist on the outside of the normal bubble everyone else occupies. Troy, I got to tell you, I'm in the normal bubble and we are having a terrific time. And we see you out there in the field outside the bubble, big sad face. We wave to you, but you don't see us. You know why? Because you're mediocre. That's right, Troy. You want to come into the bubble and join the rest of us? Get your shit together. No, but thank you for that, Troy. That is that is a feeling that I totally relate to. Just... I forget other people make mistakes. I forget other people don't finish their to-do list. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey. And don't worry, we're getting to the interview. You settle the fuck down. I just got back from vacation. I am doing the best I can. I am just one man. Kendall asks, uh, I drink... I personally don't think it's a lot. I drink a pint a day. My counselor asked me if rehab was a good idea. At first, the decision was no, but it causes a lot of fights with my partner. I just don't know what to do. I'm so confused. He wants a healthy relationship, but I'm afraid that I can't do it, not all at once. I assume you mean when you say I can't do it, giving up alcohol. I mean, my first thought was a pint a day. It does not seem like alcoholic drinking but you know it's up to the person to decide if they have a problem with alcohol or not and if you're like me I drank more than a pint a day but I would always say oh, I drink a pint or two a day when it was more like four or five or ten or twelve depending on the night but I, I think the questions to ask yourself are what do you want do you want to please your partner do you want to be true to who you are? Because if you don't have a drinking problem, um, you know, is it a healthy choice to to give up uh, having one pint a day because your partner doesn't like doesn't like you having a pint a day? Maybe that's their issue. Or does just one pint of alcohol affect you and change your personality? and affect your life? What is, is the alcohol interfering with some aspect of your life and your relationship? So there's a lot of questions to ask. So what I'm doing is I'm putting the the ball back in your court and I'm stepping outside for a smoke. 
Uh, this is from The Voice in Your Head, filled out by Kintsugi. And he writes, My brain tells me that your abusive ex, the girl you loved more over anything else in the world, even yourself, left you because you are fat. I know I'm objectively not. And she never loved you. You will never find someone who will love you. You will never do better. You can keep working on yourself, trying to find joy in life, but it will all turn into ashes. It will all mean nothing. You will stare at the void alone. You deserve to be treated like shit. Wow. That's some heavy shit, Kintsugi. Sending you some love, buddy. Jamie tells herself, I don't deserve to be sexual if I'm not in shape and that I should be embarrassed by the times I've had sex when I was fat. Uh, And then in parentheses, which is every time because I always thought I was fat. It tells me that if only I was thinner, life would be perfect. I bet a lot of people have that same voice in their heads. And speaking of voices... In our heads, we are sponsored this week, as always, by BetterHelp Online Therapy. The uh, The theme for the month at BetterHelp is the healthy brain. And, uh, you know, it's, it, it's funny. We take our car to the shop. Car's not running right. You know, we get worried about it. We do something about it. But when it comes to our brains, for some reason, we're like, uh, there's nothing that can be done. Every single time I do therapy, I always feel that I got something out of it afterwards, and I'm glad I did. I never want to go to therapy because I always think, what am I going to talk about? I don't have anything to talk about. I'm totally fine. Then I get talking, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm still in that job. I'm glad I talked about those, the catastrophizer in my brain. Uh, I've been doing BetterHelp for a couple of years, and uh, I love it. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat-only therapy sessions so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. And you guys, the listeners, get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com mental. That's better, H-E-L-P dot com slash mental and uh, make sure you include the slash mental part so they know you came from the podcast and finally uh, soundstorm uh, describes the voice in their head they write that i am an ugly disgusting person my sister is lovely and beautiful we're identical twins your fear of death is your love of life in reverse I'm a kinky person. I didn't want to be... I'm I'm ashamed. A sexual being. Deeply ashamed. You are... I want to live... Fucking depressed. But how? I can't do this anymore. I will be uncomfortable, so you will be comfortable. Is life just a series of perpetual losses? You're not depressed. We're black. There is no real chance for intimacy. We don't do that. Without risking being hurt push it all down you can't go around it Ireland, like we don't do mental health talk through is the only path no one is ever alone there's somebody else out there don't forget experiencing the same thing as you that the places you feel most broken now you just gotta look for them will one day be your greatest strength and when you find them it's a great feeling and i'm suddenly feeling horrible about <laughs> making that joke but that's how far i will go to get a laugh because i am empty inside 
Uh, you're in the right place. I am here with author Susan Kane, who has a remarkable book out uh, called Bittersweet, uh, which I was talking to Susan before we started rolling and saying, boy, if there's ever been an author that is in the wheelhouse of this podcast and the things that I talk about, it it is you. Uh, give us the elevator pitch of what uh, Bittersweet is. Gosh, well, Bittersweet, first of all, Bittersweetness is about the the deep recognition that this is a world in which joy and sorrow are forever paired and that everyone and everything we love best um, will not be here forever, but that what comes with that recognition is a kind of deep, piercing joy at the beauty of the world. And I have been on a five or six or seven year quest to figure out the magic of this bittersweet tradition. Um, and I found it everywhere. I found it across the world, across the centuries, people talking about this in our wisdom traditions, our artists, our musicians, our writers. And through it all, there is this, um, there's an understanding that with bittersweetness, that bittersweetness is a kind of gateway to creativity, to connection, and to transcendence. Could not agree more. Could not agree more. Uh, your your books crush it on the uh, New York Times bestseller list. Your previous book, which was about introversion, was on the bestseller list for seven years? Yeah, something like that. It was kind of crazy. Oh, man. And this book has gotten all kinds of uh, great blurbs from Brene Brown and, uh, and other respected and renowned uh, authors and lecturers. Uh, Let's let's dive into. Uh, before I say that, I have to I have to preface one of the uh, things we do uh, surveys on this podcast that people fill out anonymously uh, on the website. And one of the surveys that I created about I don't know probably seven years ago because I found that my favorite moments are the ones that have both light and dark in them. Mm -hmm. And we dubbed the term "awfulsome" a combination of awful and awesome. Uh, oh, wow. And so people contribute either they're both horrific and funny as, you know, as time passes or they're uh, horrific or embarrassing and beautiful. Uh, mm. And those are my favorite surveys when people fill those, mm. fill those out there. There's just something that it just turbocharges it because it feels like life condensed into a vignette. Yes, exactly. Like, that's what life is. That's what life that's, is. Yeah. Um, and I, I, one of my favorite uh, musicians is a, a gypsy jazz guitarist named Django Reinhardt. And I was trying to analyze why is it that I love him so much? And I realized one day it's because he does songs in a minor key that make you dance. Oh, wow. That's really interesting. I have to yeah. take down his name when we're done. Yes. And get some of your favorites. Yes. Yeah, he's a Minor key that makes you dance. That's really interesting because I always, like, I, I mean, I'm, as you know, a huge lover of minor key music. And, yeah. and in fact, it was my crazy love of that kind of music that got me down this path in the first place because I've always been trying to understand yeah. how it could be that something that's supposedly so sad would right. make me feel so exalted and uplifted. Yeah. Um, but having said that, I always contrasted that with dance music, which I also love. Yeah. I just don't love it in the same 
well, I don't know. Sometimes I do, but I don't. I don't associate dance music with like touching the sky in the same way mm-hmm. that that minor key music is. I right. think of it more as like I don't know, more like down to earth amazingness. Right. Uh, yeah, melancholy music uh, makes me feel like it's confirmed that I'm a member of a club. <laughs> you know, dance okay. music sometimes will make me almost feel like I'm outside the club door, peeking in the window, like. Oh, there's people that really, really love this, and yeah, I, I like it occasionally. It'll, it'll pick up my mood, but I don't find myself seeking it out as often as I do melancholy stuff because it, it makes me feel a part of something bigger than myself. The, the melancholy yeah. music. No, I totally get that. I mean, it's yeah. like the musician is saying to you, you know, that place that you've been, I've been there too, yeah. and so is everybody else who loves this music. Right, and. Uh, I, I always feel like it's like an outpouring of love that you feel. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like saying we're all in the same strange state of exile together. Right. Maybe exile, but we're right. in it together. It's something like that. And, I don't and, know. And how about the pitch black things? You know, things things that uh, where it goes, it, it, it's not just melancholy, but there's uh, real darkness there. Um you know, world events that are kind of horrifying. Um, you know, not that there's comfort there, but that there's, but that there is something there that kind of draws you in, either intellectually or just somehow grabs a hold of you and your your attention. Do you do you feel that way? I guess what I feel with things like that is like when I when I think about you know whether it's tragedy or evil or intense trauma or something like that. Um, I, I can't say it draws me so much. I, I more like feel like I don't know how anyone could look away and not try to figure out what to do right. with this reality. Right. Um, yeah, it just feels like something that's like crying out to be right. attended to and made sense of it's something like that it, it, for uh, me it feels like you ever have uh, like a, a, you know a, a file and you have file folders and then you try to put one of the file folders that is the wrong size into it that's what it feels like for me when i watch something really horrific it's like this doesn't fit but i want it to fit in, into a part of my brain that I can put it away and find some kind of resolve, but it's it's like an itch that uh, I don't know. Does that make any sense? Yeah, sure. Because it's like, how can you ever really make sense of it, or how can right. you ever really accommodate to it? Right. Yeah. And, and yet, it's also um, I wouldn't say alluring, but fascinating to me in a, in a way that. Um, makes me feel alive not emotionally but in terms of curiosity like how can how can that person who looks like the rest of us want to do that horrible thing that is endlessly fascinating to me what what drives people to oh you're talking now about like acts of evil as opposed to yeah, like, like a tragedy or something right, like that like shooters yeah. or yeah. um you know genocide stuff like that and, and i i understand intellectually that there's psychopathy out there but i think there's a part of me that wants to know what's it like to be in their skin what does mm-hmm. it feel like to have that impulse i mean i think we all 
have dark impulses. You know, I want to, you know, push that person in the face that cut in front of me in line. But, you know, I want to wipe out a whole population of people. That, that to me is just, uh, I mean, how, how, what goes on inside of, of you emotionally and intellectually when you see something that just, that, that goes beyond the, the melancholy? Oh gosh. I don't know. I don't know what to say about that. Like it's not, I don't think it's where I go naturally. So I'm not really speaking as an expert on, mm-hmm. on that so much. Um, I think where I go is just like how, like, how could it be that the world contains this and how does one live in a world that contains such things mm-hmm. alongside things that are also so beautiful and so right. joyful and like trying to make sense of the juxtaposition of those two things. I'm, I'm that, sh- oh, yes. that, that, that to me is the, and the, uh, I'm the big, sure big question. <laughs> I am sure you're a fan of Victor Frankl and man's search for meaning. Sure. I mean, sure. The, the vignette that he paints of people singing songs in the concentration camp and finding moments of kindness mm-hmm, is, mm-hmm. uh, I think that helps us understand uh, how how we can hold two completely different emotions at the at the same time. Yeah, and I'll tell you, like, I, I mean, I was saying as part of the whole quest of this book, I I really like have been studying wisdom traditions and artistic and literary traditions from all over the world, and one of the um, one of the parables that I came across that's been so helpful to me in trying to make sense of all this is, um, well, I told you how I love Leonard Cohen so much and Mm -hmm. I dedicated the whole book to him. Mm -hmm. Um, He drew a lot, well, he drew on many wisdom traditions too, but he drew in particular on the Kabbalah, which is the mystical side of Judaism, which contains this parable that says that all of creation was originally a, a single an intact kind of shining divine vessel. But then at a certain point, the vessel broke and that the world that we're living in now is the world after the breakage, but it's still a world that contains the shards of the beauty of the beauty of of this divine intact thing. And we all have the capacity to notice different shards and the capacity mm-hmm. to bend down and pick them up. Yeah. And just as a metaphor, I, I found that incredibly comforting and also activating as a kind of way to live, mm-hmm. um, you know, a, a way to live in a broken world. Yeah. Yeah. That, that... Without, without becoming like, without becoming bitter and without becoming jaded on account of all the difficult things. Right. It's like a way of saying, turn towards the beauty. It's okay to do that you still know that it's broken right. and it's okay to turn towards the beauty. Right. I mean, the sounds cheesy, but the valley helps define the mountain. Yeah. It's like that. It's like that. I was watching I, a documentary on I, MC Escher and he was endlessly fascinated with the idea of infinity and, mm-hmm. um, things, uh, patterns, uh, having, uh, seemingly incongruous, uh, Things going on at the same time. I'm I'm really kind of butchering. Uh, <laughs> but as I was looking at at some of his artwork uh, and the patterns that he had, one of the things he was brilliant at doing was um, giving meaning to negative space. Mm-hmm. And and I thought, 
you know, that really is kind of life in a nutshell. And I thought, what if the, 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 the universe, it's not just the thing that we see, but it's the space between the things that we see that its opposite might reside in. Wait, say that last bit again. Then it's not just the things that we see, but it's the space between the things that we see mm -hmm. that contains the opposite of it. And it's only when we are dealt some type of life event that we're able to see, as Viktor Frankl said, the Mm -hmm. joy Mm -hmm. in in the moment of horror or the the negative trappings of something that on the surface seems to be so incredible. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's that parable about, you know, uh, I, I don't remember um, which culture it was, but, uh, you know, somebody says to this guy, oh, you know, I just uh, inherited this money. Isn't that great? And he says, we'll see. And he says, oh, this oh, money that right. I just got, somebody robbed me and beat my son up. You know, isn't that terrible? We'll see. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's very good. That's very yeah. good. Yeah. So um, if you're comfortable talking about it, we we'll just kind of jump topics here for sure. a second. But uh, you lost both your father and your brother to, to COVID. I'm, I'm so sorry. Thank you. For your loss. Are you comfortable talking about mm-hmm. that? Yeah, I am. Just bringing up the topic, what comes up for you? Oh, gosh. Um. I don't know. It's a. Uh, I guess what I'd say is, um, it's, it's been. Kind of amazing to see the way in which grief uh, takes so many different forms and it shape shifts over time. Mm-hmm. So, in the immediate aftermath of both of those losses. First was my brother and my father, not a full year later. Um, so with my, uh, yeah, with, with both of them in the immediate aftermath, there was just like a kind of nausea that I felt that I don't know that I feel with any other, you know, adverse event, but there's just like the whole, the whole body, I think once at least in my case, like wants to reject the whole premise that this has happened. Um, and then since then, I've kind of gone through waves of acceptance and non-acceptance and acceptance mm-hmm. and non-acceptance. Um, but I will say that one framework that's been really helpful to me in thinking about grief is um, it actually it comes from the writer Nora McInerney who lost her husband. Nora's been a guest twice oh, on the okay, podcast. Okay. Love her. Yeah, so she's amazing. So so you know um you know about her framework. Yeah. Um and I, I guess just for anyone who happened not to have And her podcast episodes, is called Terrible Thanks for Asking. Yeah, exactly. And her book. And yeah. she talks about the difference between moving on and moving forward. And I found that really helpful because moving on to me is like a slightly nicer way of saying get over it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and even the the three words of let it go that we often cite, which have a lot of wisdom to them. But still, especially in our culture, I feel like underneath that wisdom is sometimes, again, the impatient message, get over it. Yeah. Pr- uh, yeah. Don't process it. Just stop making me uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. And like, stop making yourself uncomfortable. Just, you know, mm-hmm. move on. 
and uh, you know and, and and her framework of you don't have to move on you can move forward like that you can move forward with your life but carry the person with you still um, as you go and carry the loss with you still as you go I found that incredibly liberating so like you know in the early days it would be like I would constantly be thinking oh I want to call dad and tell him such and such um, and now I don't do that quite as much but I feel like I'm carrying him with me and you know it was my father who loved music so much who taught me to love music and the thing about turning towards beauty like my father was he spent his whole life doing that he, he, he was a doctor he was a medical school professor and worked a million hours a day but he would like come home after, late at night and grow orchids in the basement because he loved orchids he thought they were really beautiful and he loved the sound of the French language so he just taught himself French for the heck of it even though he never really got to speak it. He just loved knowing it. And there were a thousand things like that that he did. And I carry all that with me. Like, it's so much part of what I do on an everyday basis. I was just going to say, I mean, you clearly inherited his uh, passion and curiosity, which to me are, are the two greatest gifts that we can be born with or acquire. Yeah, or acquire like with a parent who's like infusing you with yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. So... So that's been uh, that's been quite a process, and uh, and now I understand. You know, when my when one of my sons was little and he was first understanding the idea of, of death and that his parents could die, um, I I said to him, you know, don't like even if that ha- it's not going to happen anytime soon. Even if it does, I'll always be with you, like in the moon and stars and sun all around you. Um, and I really meant it. I, and I'm not uh, like I'm not one to like. I'm very agnostic on all supernatural questions that we don't mm-hmm. that we can't really prove, but I still feel the truth of that statement in some kind of non-linear way. Yeah. So, yeah. So, um, let's talk about share some of the uh, stories if you can think of them from the book that are because I, I love real life examples of uh, whatever the subject matter is that we're talking about. Sure. Um, well, I guess one story is uh, I talk in the book a lot about spiritual and existential longing and what that means um, and how it's the, the emotional DNA of all humans, whether we're atheists or believers, mm-hmm. just the, the longing for a, a different and more beautiful world that we feel like we belong to and have somehow been cast aside from or like somehow we're not there anymore but there's something missing and i can't put my finger on what it is yeah something like that and something that fills us with like a, a really deeply sweet longing yeah. um and i tell a story of i mean so these days i experience that longing in a kind of more abstract form i guess you could say but i think that that kind of longing comes to us in concrete ways throughout our lives and so I tell a story of one way it came to me. Um, so I used to be a, a corporate lawyer before I became a writer um, in an attempt to be practical, you know, and mm-hmm. be able to support myself and stuff. And um, and I got really into it, and I was trying to make partner and everything. Um, and then a day in this, yeah, so I did that like when I was in my 20s. And then a day came, I got to my early 30s. And um, a senior partner came to my office and said, we're not, that I wasn't making partner after all. 
And I felt for a moment like my world was falling apart and I burst into tears. Um, and then I asked for a leave of absence and I left two, two hours later. I was gone. Um, and my life went into a... Left permanently? Well, I called it a leave of absence because I wanted to have like the security blanket of knowing that if I needed to come back, I could, mm-hmm. you know, and still have a job. But I really had no idea what was in store. Gotcha. Um, and, and my life at that point kind of went into a, a mini free fall. So I had left behind this career. I, two weeks later, ended a seven-year relationship that had always felt wrong. Um, and I moved out of the apartment I'd been living in all that time. So I'm like now floating around with no career, no love, no place to live. And, um, and I'm in my early 30s, and I really want to have kids. I have no idea if that will ever happen. So everything's sort of coming undone. And, um, and I fell into a relationship with a guy um, who was a musician and a lyricist. And it, and it quickly kind of devolved into one of those obsessive relationships that we've all experienced at one point or another where like if on, only, on both of your parts no on my part on my part <laughs> <laughs> thank you for coming clean about oh that. yeah yeah um and all i would have wanted to do is remove myself from the obsession but i couldn't and uh until one day a friend of mine who had been like patiently listening to all my stories about him um this friend said you know if you're this obsessed with someone it's because they represent something that you're longing for. And so what are you longing for? And it was like the minute she asked me that question, it was so crystal clear. I knew that he represented, I had wanted to be a writer since I was four and I'd spent all these years in law school and corporate law. And I was like the least likely lawyer on earth. Um, And it was so clear he represented that, writing life, like the life of art and music that I'd wanted to be part of Mm -hmm. from the very beginning. Um, So it was like he was an emissary from that world that we're all longing for, but he was an emissary from my version of that world. And as soon as I understood that, it sounds too amazing to be true, but really the obsession fell away. Like I was no longer in its grip. It was gone. And I started writing and that was it. And I kind of never looked back from there. And so uh, that question of what are you longing for really? Like, you know, you think you have to have a house, you think you have to have this particular relationship, like whatever it is you think you must have, like, what does it really represent to you? Right. Because what's underneath what's what underneath? the house stands for safety yeah. or, yeah. you know, um, success or. Yeah. Yeah. And what are your, like, the to the extent I'm right, and I think I am, that we all long for a more perfect and beautiful world, you know, and that's mm-hmm. what religion is. And that's what mm-hmm. so much of art is like Dorothy longing for somewhere over the rainbow. Like what's your manifestation on this earth of that more perfect and beautiful world? What does it look like for you? That I think is the question. And so what's your answer? Well, for me, so like, I've, you know, after that, I really wanted that kind of writing life and like, a life of the mind and a life of following my curiosities and putting them down on paper. Did it start? Like, with, I wanted that so much. I'd wanted it since I was four. And, and, and did it start with you 
exploring what you were intellectually curious about or the, taking apart the emotions that were going on inside of you or, or both? It was more just like following that pathway of a life. Um, you know, I completely <clears throat> restructured my whole life. <clears throat> um, so I signed up for this class in creative nonfiction writing um, at NYU. I was living in Manhattan at the time. And um, and sat there in that class and was like, oh, my gosh, this is it. This is totally what I'm doing. Um, what did never- you feel in your body when, if you can recall? I just remember home. I, I felt like I was home. I remember sitting in this classroom, you know, like the teacher was here and there was like a, a semicircle of those, you know, those desks mm-hmm. with like the, the little adjustable, mm-hmm. tiny little thing that you can write on. Yeah. So we were all sitting in a semicircle in those desks. I remember exactly where I was sitting and thinking, this is it. I have to reorganize my whole life around this thing. Um, and I never thought that I would make a living from it. I actually didn't think I was going to. I told myself that the goal was to get something published by the time I was 75. Because, I, you know, I'd heard all these stories of it's so hard to break into writing. So I was just like, this is what you love. So we're going to do this. Um, yeah. And uh, and I never look back from that. And did you get breadcrumbs along the way that f- felt like the universe was saying you're where you're supposed to be? Oh, I felt it every minute. It wasn't even breadcrumbs. I just always felt it. And again, I mean, part of this was because I removed the pressure from myself of feeling like I had to get published. I had to be a big success or something like that. I wasn't thinking in those terms. So, so you were being driven by the feeling rather than concrete examples of I'm, I'm worthy. People uh, will accept me. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. I was driven by the feeling of like coming into like, this is what I'm supposed to be. It was something like that, and which it, I really had felt from such a young age. And to me, that is one of the hallmarks of, you know, quote unquote, spirituality is because our spirit feels lifted, you know, Mm -hmm. a a feeling of authenticity or connection to me. Those those are the two greatest spiritual feelings that 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 I get to experience. And I imagine you were feeling both of them. Totally, totally. And I actually feel. I had a few years of just working on all different kinds of work. Like I wrote a memoir and poetry and all the play and all this different stuff before I ever published anything. My first book was quiet, but that was like a few years out from this process that I'm telling you about. And I feel really lucky that I had those years where the writing had nothing to do with career stuff because I was able to really ground myself in that you know, and since then, now that it's become a career, everything I'm describing to you is also mixed up with everyday practical concerns and career concerns mm-hmm. and measurement and, you know, where's your book on Amazon and all these kinds of questions. Um, and I always think, thank goodness I had all that time when it wasn't about that at all. You were writing for yourself. You were writing what you wanted to read. Yeah. And I mean, I still write like that. Right. I'm, I'm just saying that I, I now have moments where the other stuff crowds into my mind and I have to like, you know, I have to really focus to mm-hmm. stay grounded in the right place. And do you experience dread with your uh, commitments and success and kind of the expectations? 
No, the only dread I experience is, you know, my first book was about being an introvert and and a, a shy introvert. So, I mean, a lot of the shyness I don't have to the same degree that I did before, but it's still a fundamental part of me. So the only dread I have is like before I go out on a publicity tour, when I have to make the switch between just being in my own sanctuary mind space mm-hmm. versus being out there that's that's where i feel the dread because there's a sense of like i don't know when you're doing publicity it's like for me there's a sense of feeling a bit rubbed raw kind of Mm -hmm. like you're like raw yeah yeah, a rawness to it and and i think it also feels used to it though but i also feel like when when we're out you know uh meeting and greeting whether it's at a, a party or uh a performance that whether it's true or not, but that we can't afford melancholy. It's mm-hmm. almost like we, like a child, we have to leave at home. You know, we we can't be melancholic when we're around people. I found myself, this is a couple of years ago, uh, hosting uh, an event in Sacramento uh, around the topic of mental illness and trying to raise funding for it, etc. And I was incredibly depressed. And felt like I couldn't reveal that at mm. the one place yeah. where it should be the safest <clears throat> to do that. Mm-hmm. And I felt shame mm-hmm. and I, and it felt like I was climbing a 500 foot brick wall. And it mm. didn't even occur to me until days after the event ended that here I am not practicing what I preach, mm-hmm. hiding it instead of saying, you know, right now I'm experiencing depression so if you're out there and you're experiencing that you're wow. you're not alone but i didn't feel i could do that because i didn't want to bring people down right right and do you do you think it would have brought people down or do you i don't or the opposite i don't i think it would have done the opposite yeah. at least with that group of people right, i think right. if i'd done it in the middle of a bar at somebody's <laughs> birthday party yeah, i might have yeah. been like you know save that for the parking lot but. right <laughs> <laughs> yeah so next time you'll do it yeah. Well, I try to do it now when somebody, when a friend, somebody who it's appropriate with, Gracie, asks me how I'm doing, I try to answer them honestly. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll mm-hmm. say I'm struggling or I'm right. feeling numb or I don't know. That's probably the most honest answer most of the times mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I don't know what it is that I'm feeling. Is that something that you relate to or are you usually pretty... Uh, able to put your finger on what it is that you're feeling. I usually know what I'm feeling. Yeah? Yeah, yeah I would say so. Um, yeah, and I can usually trace its source. Like, if if I'm feeling a sense of, like, something not being quite right or feeling anxious or whatever the feeling is, and then sometimes you don't know why you're feeling that way, but usually if I, like, spend a minute and trace mm-hmm. it, I can usually figure out what the trigger is for it. That's great. That you're you're very blessed to be able to because I think for some of us it's a lifelong pursuit of trying to understand what the fuck is going on because it seems like it usually will just present itself as I'm bored, I'm restless, I don't this TV show that I normally love, I look at it with just complete indifference, you know, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. What what are the uh, kind of greatest hits of the the feelings that you experience on a day to day basis, both the positive and the negative? Oh my gosh, <laughs> I'm, I'm 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 only laughing at um, 
what an unusual podcast host you are in such a great way. Like, I can't imagine anyone else asking that question. Um, so my greatest hits. Um, I mean, on the positive side, I would say, I guess there's two things that come to mind. One is there's there's a kind of joy that I get that really borders on like an ecstatic joy at just like how like ridiculously beautiful things are sometimes, especially with music. It comes to me very reliably when I listen to the right music late at night. That's when the feeling comes. By yourself? Yeah, by myself. Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess it could happen if I were at a concert with yeah. other people who were loving the same kind of music, mm -hmm. but no, it's interesting you asked that question about by, by myself, because I feel it also if I read a book by an author where I feel like we're in total kindred spirit mind meld, yeah. and then I have that same... And you can't kind of, wait to read the next paragraph. Yeah, 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 and you just feel like, oh my gosh, how could this person know exactly? Like, they just explain something, ex they just express something exactly as I would right. express it if I had those words. Right. Um, so uh, give me three songs that are kind of... Uh, examples of the the ones that make you feel that joy oh okay well i, I mean i'll go, <laughs> I'll go immediately cohen. to leonard cohen yeah 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 um you know for years hallelujah did it now it's so overplayed so that, overplayed that it no longer does but right. you know that song did it um but i love suzanne and uh, famous blue raincoat stranger song is really beautiful mm-hmm um, the partisan. I don't know. There's so many. There's so many. And a shout out, by the way, to my friend Paralipataya, who was uh, Leonard's backup singer for and friend to uh, to Leonard for for years and and years. And uh, I've been trying to get her on the podcast, <laughs> but she's she's kind of uh, uh, I think reticent to to come on and have me pull all the all this stuff out of her. But but maybe one day. But yeah, she loved. Leonard and just, just, you know, said he was just such a beautiful soul, very complicated, but yeah, uh, yeah. as I imagine most artistic geniuses are. Mm -hmm. You got to let me know if she ever comes on. I, I will. I, I will. If you're ever in Ojai, I can make sure that you uh, meet her for lunch. Where did you say? Ojai. She oh. lives in Ojai. Where's Ojai? Ojai is uh, about an hour and 15 minutes north uh, west of Los Angeles, just oh, in from okay, okay. Uh, just in from the ocean, about fifteen minutes. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. She I, is the wife of my former co-host on a TV show that oh, wow. uh, that I okay. used to, and they have an amazing restaurant in Ojai <clears throat> called Ojai Roti. It's a rotisserie chicken and homemade sourdough bread. And, oh, oh, it's fucking gosh, amazing. I would love but to I'm, check that out. I'm going off on a tangent, <laughs> but she, uh, she is a, a, a successful, uh, incredible um, solo artist as well and tours all around the world so mm -hmm. uh and she did a uh album of uh covers of leonard's music huh, and so okay, okay. i highly recommend thank uh, you i'm gonna look I, for that i believe it's called bird on a wire okay yeah, okay yeah um, anyway I, sorry I, sorry that's okay no and i was just listening to a song last night that delivered me to that state um uh I'm probably going to mispronounce it because this is in Portuguese, but it's Alonge Omar mm -hmm. um, by the band Madrideus. They're like a modern day Fado band. Mm -hmm. So Fado is like the ultimate melancholic music, of yeah. course. Um, yeah, and it's just 
Beautiful. But it's fun. It has to be at the right time of day. Like if I listen to that while I'm getting dressed in the morning, it doesn't mm-hmm. really work. It's got to yeah. be like, you know, sunset plus. Okay. Um, so back to the greatest hits of, of okay. emotions. Okay. So, so uh, the the joy. Uh, and, and, and one question before we move on to the, the, the other uh, emotions that you experience. One of the things you, you talk about in the beginning of the book is a joy that's accompanied by a sense of longing. And that's something that I, that I, I don't think I experience, and I'm a bit uh, puzzled and curious about it. Can you talk more about that feeling of longing that comes with joy? Yeah. I mean, th- these near-ecstatic states that I'm talking about from music have that longing in them. Um, for anything in particular? For a, another no. feeling, a situation? No, it's just like, I mean, C.S. Lewis actually called this the inconsolable longing for we know not what. And it's something like that. It's just this feeling of, yeah, just. Do you, do you think I, it's to want to know where the source of joy comes from? No, mm-hmm. I, I think it's like a, I think it's a kind of spiritual longing or an existential longing, mm-hmm. you know, for, I was saying like that, that sense of there being like a perfect, a perfect place, a perfect world, a perfect love, a perfect mm-hmm. beauty, a perfect everything um, that exists, you know, only in some otherworldly yeah. state. Yeah. It, it's something like that. I mean, it's the it's like the longing for the Garden of Eden, you know, right. it's the best way I can think of to right. say it. Um, like the Sufis call it the... For them, they're talking about the longing for the divine, and they call it the longing for the beloved of the soul. It's mm-hmm. some kind of feeling like that. There's a, there's, a, there's a quote that I have in the book. Um, so in the book, I, I talk about all the different ways in which this kind of existential longing mm-hmm. appears in all our traditions. And there's one amazing quote. It's from a novel, and it's describing the moment that one character in the in the novel beholds another man who he's falling instantly in love with and i wish i had the book right here to read the exact quote but it mm. but it talks some it's it's something about how there's a feeling upon gazing at the the beauty and attractiveness of this other man that he um there's a feeling that even if he can be with that other man it, that it still won't be enough it would be mm-hmm. like killing the go- the golden goose to to get its eggs that because he says that the the man represents um a homeland from which he feels he's been banished something like that mm-hmm. so that's the only way i can think of to express yeah. it i th- i think most of us probably experience that that feeling through other people you know romantically and i sometimes wonder if well, let me back up a, a, a bit. I, I heard in one of my support groups one time that the thing we long for in somebody else are actually the the, the traits that we need to embody ourselves, be the person that we're looking for. And I sometimes think that that longing is kind of the universe's way of pulling us towards our authenticity. Hmm. Uh, I don't know. It's just my, it's my little kind of uh, dime store 
theory on because I'm I'm fascinated uh, by the forces of the universe, yeah, and how they present themselves in our emotion. That to me is is spirituality is um, those invisible pushing and pulling feelings that we follow or, or don't follow. And um, authenticity to me is is the the golden egg, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but it's so find so hard to find out what our authenticity is. It seems like it's usually a matter of letting things go rather than becoming more. You know? Oh, that's interesting. I don't know. I don't know if I agree with that because. I don't know. I I think of authenticity as really becoming like the the self, the person, the everything mm. that you were meant to be in the first place, and right. discarding the the force, the external forces that want to prevent you from doing that for whatever reason. Yeah, of which there are so many. Usually, right. maybe that's just a people pleaser in me that I found that I had to let that go to begin oh, to understand go, yeah. what it was that I liked. Yeah, absolutely. that was such a, a necessary part. Right. Uh, right. For me. Right. So, what well, are some of the? Did I cut you off? Um, well, uh, no, I'll just say one other thing, like just in trying to explain this mm-hmm. long out. Yeah. There's this other parable that I came across that, um, it's a, it's an old Hasidic parable and it's talking about this rabbi who was a member of his congregation who seems very indifferent to all his talk of the mm-hmm. divine. And, um, and then one day the rabbi hums for the man, a melody that has this bittersweet yearning quality to it. And the man listens and he says, oh, like now I know what you were talking about all this time Like, because I'm feeling this intense longing to be united with the Lord. Mm. Um, so I'm not saying I feel that exactly, but but I actually feel like I'm like that old man, um, even though I wouldn't use those words to express it. Right. It's something like that. So um, what, what but, are some of the other greatest hits of... Uh... The emotions, especially ones that that maybe you struggle with, um, not necessarily, the, but yeah, know, I, sure. I would say the biggest one that I struggle with is a kind of low level anxiety that I have. Like it's not, it's not like a crippling anxiety. Well, it used to be that with public speaking, which we could talk mm-hmm. about. That was like a whole other thing. That amazingly, I've actually managed to overcome. I never, ever, ever thought I could. So that's Mm -hmm. like a whole story unto itself. Um, But yeah, I would say it's not unusual for me to have a kind of free form, low level of anxiety that I need to deal with. What do you, do you feel there are benefits to to that anxiety? Mm, I mean, I think there's some practical benefits these aren't so much emotional, spiritual benefits. But professional benefits. There are, there are a lot of professional benefits yeah. because I feel like I do things at a much higher level because I'm driven to by, you know, the anxiety is telling me, well, what if you don't do this? What if you don't do that? Yeah. What if you get that wrong? Yeah. Um, so like I, yeah, I'm not that likely to make right. like a fact finding type of mistake because I'm right. always checking everything as i was reading your book uh i began to resent you for how hard you work and the (laughs) lectures you go to and the quotes that you pull and the things that you study i was like oh my god she is a fucking (laughs) go-getter 
<laughs> well, I mean, I think what you're seeing there is like a mix of like I I do have this like crazy intense intellectual curiosity and mm-hmm. you know love of beauty and excellent things. So I want to just like read about them all the time. Right. So you're seeing part of that, but yeah. but the thing that makes it all presented on the page with a million endnotes and documentation and right. all that, that's the anxiety, I think. Yeah. I mean, it, it's wanting to do a good job, but right. I don't think I would do it to that level without that. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. You're becoming more comfortable as a public speaker. Do you feel that it has anything uh, to do with the subject matter now that you're talking about, or is it just by repetition you become more comfortable? And I guess the reason I ask is, uh, you know, I heard somebody say in a support group one time that it's a lot less nerve-wracking to speak when you're speaking your truth. Oh, so that's totally true, that for sure, for sure, for sure. But before I could ever get to that point, I just had such a profound terror. That's the only word I could use, like terror, horror, terror, at just being in the spotlight at all. And what were some um, of the fears? You know, it was on such a primal level. It was like, I mean, I can, I'll tell you in a minute sort of what was happening intellectually, but on a primal level, it was like every cell in my body saying, there lies danger. Do not go there. Do not go there. Any any specific image that you were afraid was going to come true? People walking out, somebody saying that was terrible? Yeah, I think it was people saying that was terrible. It was feeling like, um, I think, well, I, I guess to your point about authenticity, I felt I was not the kind of person who was supposed to be in that role. I felt like that role belongs to, you know, uh, like super charismatic showman, you know, like. So you're going to be discovered as an imposter. Not even as an imposter. No? More like I'm so clearly not that person. <laughs> like you're, that person is supposed to be like a super effervescent, dominant, you know, whatever person that I'm not. Right. And like, what the hell is she doing up there? Oh, you know, it was something like that. Like she's not even good enough to fake it. <laughs> yeah. It didn't even occur to me that I would successfully be able to fake it and then be discovered as an imposter. Right. It was more like, yeah. yeah. I don't see through you. I see you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was more of that. Yeah. Um. So part of, I mean, it was a long process overcoming that, but part of it had to do with, um, like, understanding that there were different ways to be a public speaker mm-hmm. and figuring out what my way was that was true to who I am and could still work on a stage. How did you find that? And what do you remember a moment when it felt like, oh, I might, I might be able to do this? And not feel like? Um, well, <clears throat> I mean, I did, I started to kind of look around to see that there were other speakers out there who had a more like, you know, introverted cerebral style the way I do, and and who <clears throat> were still compelling to listen to. So that was helpful, like on an intellectual level. But what I really needed to do, you know, for overcoming any fear, the, the big magic solution is exposing yourself to the thing you fear, but in really small doses. Mm -hmm. So I took a class for people with public speaking anxiety, um, where on the first day, all you would do is stand up and say your name and sit back down and you were done. Um, you know, and then you'd ratchet it up a little by little. And I guess your middle name, 
Yeah, yeah, like that. I mean, like literally, they would do these exercises. Like you would, you'd have to stand up in front of the class, but you'd have other people standing alongside you, so that you weren't the only one alone mm. in the spotlight. Because people who have real social anxiety, like the worst thing is to be singled out and yeah. in the spotlight. So just having the presence of the other people standing next to you, well, you would like answer some questions like, where do you go to school? You know, where do you grow up? And then you're done. And little by little, <clears throat> you ratchet it up from there. So I don't know, I guess along that way, I had moments of being able to do it and realizing that people liked what I had to say or something like that. And uh, I don't know, it's still, it's a miracle to me to this day. I, I, I remember at first, before I did all these desensitization techniques that mm -hmm. I'm describing to you now, before that, I went to see more of a standard therapist and, you know, where they like try to figure out the source of your fear, blah, blah, which I, I'm a big believer in therapy, but I don't mm. think that works for this type of fear. Right. But anyway, she said something like, you know, you're going to feel so good when you conquer this. And I remember thinking, she has no idea. I will never, ever conquer this. It's too mm. big. It's too impossible. Um, so, yeah, the, the fact that. Now, 10 years later, it's not an issue is still startling to me. What are, what are some of the other <clears throat> emotions? So a uh, low, <clears throat> persistent, low level uh, kind of anxiety was the yeah. last one yeah. you listed. What are, what are some of the other common emotions that you feel? Um, let's see. I don't know what, how to trace this one to an emotion, but there's a kind of like there's like a contentedness that I feel with just like scenes from everyday life, you know, just like moments with my family. Mm -hmm. I'll just have, feel like really contented. It's a very calm feeling. That is not one that we get very often on the, on the podcast. And I love hearing that because when we do get to feel content, it's mm -hmm. such an amazing feeling. Yeah. You know, the, the myth that it's going to come through wealth or, you know, whatever is, uh, is just can, it can be so crazy making when there's often just little things right in front of us that could help us feel content if we can just see them or calm down enough to have them become visible. Yeah, totally. What, I mean, go ahead. Were you going to ask what what brings that on? Yes. Or, yeah. Yes. Yeah, and I was going to say I I actually think <clears throat> that old Freudian idea of um, love and work as being the two keys mm -hmm. to a contented life. I really believe in that. Um, I think some some of my best moments, there's the kind of ecstatic longing thing that I was telling you about, but there's also just being in a state of flow, which I think comes when you're doing work that you love. Time just um, flies by. Yeah, and, and like... Yeah, it flies by and you're just so deeply engaged mm -hmm. that you're not attending to anything else. Yeah. You're, yeah, you're just in a state of utter engagement. I just love that. Yeah. It, it's like it just exists for its own sake. Yeah. Yeah, it's an, it's, it's an amazing, amazing feeling. Yeah. Any mm -hmm. other emotions that are on the greatest hits list? <laughs> um there's a kind of sorrow that I feel at, uh, yeah, just, you know, just at the world containing the things that it does. 
Mm-hmm. And so that like comes comes up and hits me sometimes. So well, let's let's take stuff from the news. The uh, yeah, things like know, that. The the school shootings, which uh, you know, we just hear such lip service from. Well, we've got to end this, and you know, and then just total idiots. Well, we need to have thicker doors in the schools and mm-hmm. stuff. That just it just makes me want to punch. Just makes me want to punch them. And how do you, how do we take care of ourselves emotionally without rejecting our duties as a a citizen? Well, I don't know. I mean, I think... I'm just thinking, since you bring up that example, I'm thinking of uh, what it was like. I, I, I read some accounts of what it was like for the mothers who first went at the moment they learned that it was their child who was mm-hmm. in there and not coming out. And, and the police weren't going in. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I Actually, I think when I read the, these accounts, it wasn't even of the the recent shooting. It was of a different one. It was in the context of the recent one, gotcha. but gotcha. but anyway, I it's just like for for a moment I'm like I am that mother, um, you know, and then you just feel like a just the most profound grief. So I don't know. Um, that's a big one for me. Just kind of going in and out of that. I th- I think kind of on a on a daily basis for a lot of us. Um, there's that struggle to acknowledge our emotions without obsessing mm-hmm. over them mm-hmm. or finding it some unhealthy way of distracting us from, from feeling something and sitting through it and, and letting it pass no matter how long it takes. It's, it's so hard to know what is your mind playing tricks on you and what is the reality that you need to sit with. Yeah, I. It's interesting that you say that because many people, like when I talk about bittersweetness or they read the book or whatever, they're like, you know, I, I'm, I get what you're saying, but I'm kind of afraid to go there. I'm afraid if I go there, I'll never get out again. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Though I, I, I guess that's why I come back to that metaphor that I was telling you at the beginning about, you know, the shards of light all around mm-hmm. us because I feel like. Looking at the world that way gives you permission to go in the direction of joy and beauty without mm. turning your back on the other things that you yeah. see yeah. that might bring you down. The, you know? are, are, there's space for all of it. There's right. space for all of it. That's right. really the answer. Yeah, and one doesn't mean the other is false. Right. And in fact, what would really be false would be to only make room for one or the other. Yeah. So, yeah, I think if one said, well, you know, there's all these terrible school shootings and there's this right. and there's this. And therefore, I should never experience happiness or joy mm-hmm. or see beauty or anything like that. That would right. that would be just as false yeah. as to say that you should go around, you know, with a toxically positive, cheery smile on your face all right. the time. They're, they would both be false. I love that phrase, toxically positive. <laughs> that yeah. needs to be the name of a band. Well, I mean, that phrase has become like almost a cliche in the last yes. few years. Oh, I've never. I've ne- really? Never heard it. Oh my yeah, god. Then again, I don't get out of my living room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um yeah, that's become like a 
yeah, almost a cliche because yeah. I, I think people are starting to realize the way in which our culture asks us to mm-hmm. go around all the time, you know, with a smile pasted on, mm-hmm. regardless of what we might be feeling. I think a lot of people, myself included, uh, there's a component to joy that feels unsafe. Uh, I've had moments when I'm with my girlfriend and I feel so content and so in love. My next thought is she's going to die before me and I won't be able to bear. Right. Yeah, I know. A kind of foreboding that comes. Or like if if you're this happy, then... Right. It can't last. It can't last. Or, yeah, or that... Loss will inevitably become will co- inevitably come, and you won't be able to handle it. Right, and Something the loss like will be so much greater than the good that you will clearly feel stupid for ever falling in love mm-hmm. because the universe never wanted you to be happy. Yeah, it was just having you slip on a banana peel. You know, this is just like a, a practical, like folk wisdom type of hack, but. There's something my mother said to me when I was younger. Um, I had a very complicated relationship with her, but like with a lot of love. And I used to be very, I I had a couple of friends whose parents had died young. So I was very scared about that um, when I was a kid. And I remember, and so I worried about that. And I remember her saying to me, don't throw good years after bad, by which she meant, even if bad years are going to come, don't throw away the good times now worrying about those like the, oh, don't you know? Don't obsess about about the past and let it ruin or don't your ob- present. No, don't obsess about the potential bad future. Oh, so when you're having a good time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I actually find that really liberating because yeah. it's like, yeah, it might be terrible in five minutes or tomorrow or right. in ten years, but that doesn't mean it is right now. Right. And nowhere is it written that you know you're like honor bound to throw away what you have now. Just because that might come, right? Yeah. So yeah, it's I find that helpful at, at those moments because I th- I think everybody has those moments that you're yeah. describing. Yeah. Like and don't pe- enjoy this too much because then the loss will really be terrible. Right. Yeah. But and to me, one of the most toxic things that we can allow in our lives is is pessimism. It's it's so. It's so easy to mistake it for um, intelligence. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Even though sometimes pessimism may be proved right, mm-hmm. in the long haul, it's such a small, sad way to live. Well, it's interesting. I would say I sometimes think pessimism is in the eye of the beholder. Mm-hmm. And by uh, pessimism, I don't mean the, the lack of, of joy and positivity. I mean just the belief that everything is going to be fucked and what's the point? Oh, yeah. You kind of mean – it sounds to me like cynicism almost yeah. or like nihilism. Yes. Like there's no point in anything. Right. Yeah. You know, rather yeah. than skepticism. Uh-huh. Yeah. Skepticism no, I think is great. Right. Right. No, I'm totally with you. I'm totally with you. Yeah. But you seem like a, a kind of a naturally uh, optimistic uh, person. I would say I'm naturally non-nihilistic. I don't know if I'm optimistic. <laughs> Can you really risk that, Susan? I don't you know. You sure you want to have that publicly documented? I don't know. I, cause I, I don't think of myself as optimistic. Like, my husband is super optimistic. And, yes. um, and it's almost comical how much, you know, in a given situation, yeah. he will look at things in a way 
that's so optimistic that I think it's like totally non-realistic. And I think right. he thinks that my take on a situation is like overly, you know. Wow. He must be a really, really optimistic person because you radiate such positive energy and the themes of your book are so life-affirming and, and yet also real. You know, they're not uh, saccharine or, you know, pie in the sky. I mean, what, you know, one of the topics that you talk about is uh, uh, how we're biologically wired to connect over suffering. I mean, it's, I don't know if there's a more in, important topic in the discomfort of being a human being than that. I, t- I just got a goosebump. I totally agree with you. And we, before we talk about that, I just have to say I have to chuckle a little bit because I think you're like the only person who would say that I'm super optimistic because like most people will look at the topic of my book and be like, oh, my God, um, yeah. like this is really interesting. But, you know, it's like uh, maybe a little too much on the moonlight side and mm-hmm. not enough on the sunshine side. Yeah. Um, but and, and I think only people who – well, maybe not only people, but I think – People who have experienced despair, emptiness, confusion, sadness, trauma, I think they're the ones that can truly, truly get that and experience Mm -hmm. it because uh, I I think we have to experience that to feel the the meaning that may come from it years, you know, may come immediately, may come the next day or in the moment. There might be something beautiful. Are there any moments from your life or from the book where somebody was able to extract meaning or connection through suffering? Oh, gosh. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of stories that I tell in the book. The one that just sprang to mind at this moment was... um, uh, Maya Angelou, you know, whose story I tell. And she, you know, she just had this terrible, terrible childhood in so many ways. I mean, she was functionally abandoned, she and her brother, by, by their parents. And she was raped at an early age and terrible racism, all kinds of stuff. And, uh, and, and all of this, it was so great that she for I think it was five years as a child, I think starting from like age eight to around age 13, she didn't speak. She did not speak to anybody except for her brother, like not one word. Um, it was because the the man who had raped her was, I, I guess she told the story to her family and then he was killed, uh, maybe by her family, maybe by other mm-hmm. people in the town. I may be getting some of the details a little bit wrong, but anyway... And, and she felt that the power of her words was so great that it had gotten this man killed. She shouldn't speak at all. So wow, she literally did not speak for five years until at the age of 13, she meets this woman named Mrs. Bertha Flowers, who's this lovely woman, delicate, beautiful, kindly, lovely, um, loves literature. But she, she doesn't mention this one thing about Bertha Flowers that – she often smiled, but she never laughed, which I thought was just like a wonderful way at hinting at whatever Mrs. Flowers had been through herself. Mm-hmm. And anyway, Mrs. Flowers takes the young Maya under her wing. She starts reading literature to her, A Tale of Two Cities. And, um, and Maya's listening, and she says in, in, in the voice of this woman, Mrs. Flowers, 
it sounded like music, the words. And um, and somehow Mrs. Flowers coaxes Maya to start speaking by reading the words mm-hmm. of this literature. And from there, you know, she ends up writing her memoir and her poetry and her plays and all of it. And um, yeah, and there, <laughs> there's actually an amazing moment um, about 30 years later, there's a young girl who reads Maya's famous memoir, I, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings, and is like stopped dead in her tracks because she th- thinks, oh my gosh, this is my story too. Like, I can't believe there's another person mm-hmm. who had these same experiences that I did and who wrote this story down. And that woman, or that little girl who read that memoir and felt that way, was Oprah. 30 years later and to me that's like the amazing thing of like these moments of such intense connection Mm -hmm. you know that can happen through literature or music or in person or whatever it is Um, but all of it is like making meaning out of Mm -hmm. out of some kind of deep pain yeah and I think that that's a it's something that humans are drawn to do we're we're meaning making creatures in general we are and especially with pain like that's what we do with it and yet the most natural instinct is to pull away go in the corner lick our wounds and and don't talk about it yeah i think partly because we're encouraged to do that it's like Mm. i we're we're encouraged to think if there's too many wounds then there's something wrong with us we're going to be too much too much Yeah. yeah yeah I also like I, I talk I trace in the book this history of how we got divided emotionally between winners and losers. Um, so like it used to be in history, it was seen that if you were like poor and unfortunate, that was because the goddess of mis it was because of the gods. It was like the mm-hmm. the goddess of misfortune had not favored you. Like you just got unlucky. But around the nineteenth century, that kind of changes and and it starts being viewed that whatever your fate is, it's because of something inside you. And we start seeing people as intrinsically winners or intrinsically losers. And the more you see people that way, the more you want nothing to do with your pains and your longings Mm -hmm. and your traumas and all of it, because all of that marks you as a loser. Mm -hmm. So of course you're going to try to step away from it and not, you're not going to try to make meaning out of it. You're going to try to disavow it. Yeah. To, to take it personally. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of the, I think one of the biggest mistakes we can make is to take uh, reality personally. Mm-hmm. And for me, it starts with traffic. You know, if I can accept that traffic is the way it is going about my day, yeah. uh, it, it just gets me in, into a good frame of mind. And, and it actually will improve my mood, even if it's bumper to bumper. You know, say, well, maybe this is universe giving me a chance to call that friend I haven't talked to yeah, yeah, in a while. Or to yeah. look around and notice this field I drive past every day and never really look at. You know, right, and one right. of the things I love in your book is you talk about trying to find beauty everywhere. And that, um, I just love that. I love that. Yeah. I, <laughs> what I just thought of when you said this is uh, something I read once from uh, the the writer and nun Pema Chodron, I may be mm-hmm. mispronouncing her name, yeah. um, but she has that thing about how 
like every time you feel yourself getting hooked, that's like a moment to practice unhooking yourself. And and so she gives the example of getting stuck in a middle seat in, in an airplane, mm-hmm. you know, in between two like unpleasant people, let's say, right. and, and there you are and you're stuck. And she's, she's, she like welcomes those moments because, ah, this is a moment to Learn practice about the not elbows. getting, yeah, and not getting hooked. Yeah. And so every time I'm in a middle seat, I think of that. I'm like, oh, I don't think I'm there yet. Yeah. Anything else you'd like to uh, share before we wrap up? Um, I don't know. I, I think you... We covered a lot. I think we covered a lot. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm so glad uh, you came on and we got to hear about your experiences and uh, and your book. Your book is called Bittersweet, How Sorrow and Longing Make Us Whole. Um it's doing great on the New York Times bestseller list, as did your your previous book, which was called uh, Quiet, which is about introversion. We didn't even get into that. We might have to have you back on the podcast to talk about <laughs> that. That would that be if awesome. You're, if you're uh, willing. Um, and if you would send us a, a couple of signed copies of uh, Bittersweet, that would be awesome. I'd love to give one to a, a listener. Absolutely. I would love to do yeah. that. And yeah. where can pi- people find you? Um, social media? Uh, a website? Yeah, I would say both. So I have a website, um, susankane.net, and there's a newsletter there that you can sign up for. Um, okay. And I do kind of reader Q&A and Okay. other ideas and things that I share. Um, and Kane and is spelled C-A-I-N. Right. So it's Susan, S-U-S-A-N, C-A-I-N dot net. Dot net. Um, and with the newsletter, we don't share your information. It's just just to send out the letter. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm also on social media. So especially LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. At Oh, gosh. I have a different handle at every single one, we'll unfortunately. Put them, we'll put them under the show notes. Yeah, for, I'll give you all those links. Episode. Thanks so much, Susan. Thank you so much for having me. Really, really enjoyed talking to her. And uh, as always, we put links to our guests' uh, social media, where you can buy their books, all that stuff, under the show notes for this episode. Before I dive into uh, some surveys, uh, I want to... Uh, Ask for some support, some financial support out there. Um, We do not have the advertising uh, that we did in the beginning of the year. And uh, it's we're having a bit of a budget shortfall. And uh, we'd really love any kind of contributions, especially through our monthly Patreon page. Um, That would be really great. That's patreon.com slash mentalpod. And... um, the links to all that stuff is on our website, which is uh, metalpod.com. And you can become a monthly donor for as little as a dollar uh, a month, and it means the world to me. So as uncomfortable as that is for me to do, uh, it's getting where I have to I have to do that. So putting that out there. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by uh, Soundstorm, who actually we had earlier in the podcast, and uh, Soundstorm identifies as uh, a gender. And about their ADD, uh, they write, could someone help me remove all these screaming cats from the tumble dryer? (laughs) That doesn't sound like a fun head to babysit. Uh, Mike uh, writes about his depression, his anxiety, being a sex crime victim, 
alcoholism and drug addiction, and he gives a snapshot from his life. He says, I hope to crash while driving, not to get hurt or die, but to finally find out who cares enough to visit me in the hospital. Mike, that is so common. It is so common, and it breaks my heart because our family, the the people that we want, whether they're our blood family or not, they're out there, and we don't need to get physically hurt for them to show up for us. I I discovered that in support groups. And um, it it's an amazing feeling just knowing that they're they're there for you. So I believe you can have that. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey. Uh, and Sandy um, asked the question, was I sexually abused by my doctor? Um I'm 23 years old and I've been grappling with this traumatic experience I had when I was only six. I can't determine if it would be considered sexual abuse or not because I was at the doctor's and my dad was present. I had a bad uh, UTI, not uh, life-threatening, probably. I had it because I didn't drink enough water. And the doctor wanted to rule out if it was a certain bacteria or not. He told my dad they would put a tube in my urethra and fill up my bladder with water to flush it out. My dad trusted the doctor and probably didn't think twice about it, so he said yes. I vividly remember laying on that table and crying and screaming in pain. The first tube they tried to jam in me was too big. Then they tried another tube, which still hurt, but they managed to get it in. Once everything was said and done, I felt numb. My dad was there for the whole thing. I remember the ride home was awfully quiet and long. I was still throbbing in pain, uh, sitting in the back of the car. Uh, But the kind doctor gave me a cherry-flavored sucker to alleviate the pain. What a caring man he was, LOL. To this day, my dad says he wishes he would have stopped it when he saw what they were doing to me. I now have a deep distrust in doctors and haven't been to one for a routine checkup in years. My question for you is, would you classify this as sexual trauma? I felt violated, exposed, and gross, but I kept telling myself it was a medical procedure so it shouldn't count, question mark. Part of me wants to press charges or sue this doctor, but he was just doing his job, right? What if there was no other procedure he could have done to diagnose the UTI? Although they really should not be sticking tubes in little girls unless it's absolutely necessary or life-threatening. I also wonder why they didn't knock me out if they had to do it. That might have been smart. Well, my, the first thing I want to say is I am not a doctor. Um, and I, I had a similar experience as a child. They didn't stick anything in me, but it was really, really dehuman, dehumanizing, and I was totally naked, and it was surprised on me, and I felt myself leave my fucking body. And I was around, uh, I don't know, 11 maybe? And what I want to say, first of all, is I'm so sorry that you had to go through that. That is horrible. And I think the important thing for you to focus on is your feelings. You know, things can be filed under, is it legal or illegal? Is it ethical or unethical? Was it necessary? Was it negligent? I'm not a doctor, so I can't address any of those things. But what I can address is how important it is 
to process emotional and physical and sexual trauma. Somebody doesn't have to have bad intents for us to experience sexual trauma. And that's a really important thing to understand that they're, they, they don't necessarily have anything to do uh, with each other. Uh, so I hope that helps, but I really, really encourage you to um, open up to a trusted friend, a therapist, a support group, um, and and let those those feelings out and maybe hold off on the idea that there's some type of absolutely right type of truth that you're going to discover, but just begin to move towards focusing on on healing and uh, and maybe talk to a urologist and run it by them and see what they say. But I hope that helps. Sending you, sending you a hug. Same survey. Uh, and who asked this? Oh, I think I just threw that page away. Oh my God, I'm becoming. Why don't I just go watch Murder? She wrote. Um, for some reason, I don't have the the name of the person that asked this question. And they said, um, how, how is your experience going no contact with your mother? Has it gotten better over the years, knowing she's getting older, etc.? cetera? Uh, how has it affected your relationships with your extended family? Does your mom use relatives to try to get to you? I've, I've answered uh, in a similar um, survey uh, a couple of weeks ago, kind of answered the same question, um, except I, I didn't talk about how it's affected my relationships with my extended family. It hasn't really affected my relationship with my brother or my cousin who was raised with us. My dad passed away years ago. Um, Does your mom use relatives to try to get to you? Um, Not really. There's been a couple of attempts, but my brother's really protective of me and won't give out my my address uh, to her. because she didn't, when I asked her to not write or call me, she didn't uh, respect that. You know, and there's a part of me that understands that how hard it must be for a mother to let go of contact with a child. I know it's hard for a child to let go of contact with their mother. There's a part of me that wishes like hell that that I could have a relationship with, with her. Um, what is with all the fucking airplanes? Ah, they're spying on me. They're going to report back to my mom. I knew they were going to do it with a plane. I thought they were going to have a guy in the bushes with one of those big, long mics. No, they went airplane. Uh, She writes, I can't take the abuse anymore. It's affected my health to the point where I've been suicidal more than I'd like to admit. I feel so trapped. I used to be scared about losing my mom, but honestly, the truth is I've never really had a mom. I've had a bully and a terrorizer instead. I have so many stories I could tell of what she's done to me. She doesn't see me as a person, just an object. Again. The nosy plane. Why don't I shut the window? How about that? Fucking idiot. What you just said there is what really matters. 
it's how you feel about it. Fuck what anybody says about, oh, you can't cut contact off with your mom. No, it's killing you. It's making you suicidal. So do what you would do if this was your daughter who was experiencing this and there was somebody who was abusing her. You would protect her from that person. So step in and be your own parent. You didn't have a parent growing up. You had an objectifier. Sending you some love. Allie writes about the voice in her head. I tell myself I'll never be happy. I deserve all the misfortune that's happened to me in my life. I will never find love again. And if I do, I'll inevitably fuck it up like I always do. Well, at least you're consistent. That's the important thing. You see, there's a little compliment in there. I'm a consistent person. We got to look we got to look for the sunshine in the clouds, Allie. It's so easy to be, feel cynical about love because relationships are so fucking hard. They're so hard. I have to say, it is really nice being in a relationship without drama, without struggle, without all the shit that I never thought a relationship could be free of. Not that we don't have our canoeing moments, but there is... So much love and gentleness in our relationship. And uh, I never thought that was possible. This is from the Shame and Secrets uh, survey. And this is filled out by Bill. Bill identifies as straight. He's in his 20s, was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment, never been sexually or physically abused. Uh, Darkest thoughts, random and unexplainable rage. I'll be sitting with my girlfriend, happy and content, and I start to wonder what it would be like to hit her. It seems to come on randomly, and I get incredibly pissed and think about violence. I've never acted on it and never would, but I feel terrible for hours afterwards thinking, how could I think of something so disgusting? You know, I think of what uh, Kimberly Quinlan, the therapist we've had on, who talks about um, pure O, which is an obsessive thought. And she said, the most important thing is it contradictory to your moral compass. And if it is, then it's just a thought. It's not driving you closer to doing it. It's for you, it sounds like it's just an obsessive thought. Uh, darkest secrets. If you were to ask any of my friends how many people I've had sex with, they'd guess about 10 times higher than the real number. In reality, I have real problems with porn and as such could almost never give it up. I end ended up almost never going home with women and instead just kissed, thinking I could never have sex. Now that I'm older, I have almost no shame about that, but I've kept the lie up for so long that I can't seem to break it. Uh, Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Forward women. It's almost never about the sex for me, but the lead up. If I ask for a blowjob and receive one, it will be one-tenth as memorable as my girlfriend insisting on giving me one. Even when I watch porn, I only really care about the lead-up or the scenario. I'm that weirdo who needs good acting. Buddy, you are not alone in that one. 
I get so pissed. Though I haven't looked at porn in months, but when I when I used to, I would just be like, does nobody get it? Does nobody understand it's not about the sex? It's about the context. It's about the context. And sometimes the uniforms. Um, what, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? These days, I'm actually quite open and don't hold back too much. What, if anything, do you wish for? Financial stability. You know, I think that's pretty standard for my age, 24. I'm constantly gaining more skills and expanding my resume. I don't dream about being rich, just not having my day ruined by receiving bills. Have you shared these things with others? Mostly. I love comedy, and I've found a brutally honest, self-depreciating, uh, self-deprecating Humor makes me feel better. Something about laughing about something that seems so private and getting others to laugh about it too makes me realize it's not weird. Amen to that. Amen to that. Thank you for that, buddy. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by Harper. And she asked, do you still take Adderall? How has your experience been? How has it improved your life? I've been taking it for years. Uh, I no longer take it. I took it for about two years and it worked great. It really, really helped with my uh, treatment resistant depression, but it affected my blood pressure and that's why I had to go off it. And um, yeah, so unfortunately, I am not able to take it anymore. This is uh, from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself former non-professional dancer. She identifies as pansexual. Uh, she's in her 20s, says that she was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Uh, ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. Uh, she had, uh, when she was 17, uh, she had a relationship uh, with a guy who was 36 years older than her. Um, it was consummated when she was 19 of legal age. Um, she's not sure if she's been physically or emotionally abused uh, any positive experiences with the abusers uh, with regard to my first boyfriend the much older man I had really strong feelings for him and I believed the things he told me like that he was faithful to me that he loved me that our relationship was abnormal in a rare case but that it was still okay etc so that makes me not want to blame him or be angry at him also our sex together was pretty great lol i really enjoyed it and he was kind and gentle and he essentially gave me a really good first sexual experience i.e losing my virginity um Oh, and I forgot to read uh, if you've been physically or emotionally abused. Uh, I, grew up, I grew up in a hoarder's house, which I wonder if that counts as some type of emotional abuse. Um, you know, I, I, I personally do. Uh, I think it's certainly a, a, a toxic environment to, to grow up in. Uh, my boyfriend would argue uh, that it does count as emotional abuse. He's adorably protective in that way. He sees all the side effects of my childhood on me and how damaging they are to my daily life and occasionally to our relationship. I wasn't really aware of how bad the house was until maybe my early young adulthood, and only recently have I been able to label or call it hoarding, a word I'm still vaguely uncomfortable with. 
Also, regarding my childhood, my nuclear family was very open about bodies and things like that, so we were often naked or mostly naked around each other, and I think I might have even showered with my parents up to a relatively old age. I don't know, maybe my preteens, question mark. But that said, I don't feel like there was ever anything sexual about it. I mean, it was more just like comfort with our bodies, and that translated into nudity or partial nudity, being okay and into things like someone showering at the same time that someone else walks in and goes to the bathroom. That was just our normal, I guess, and similar to the hoarding stuff. I didn't really realize how far from the norm it was until a fairly long time after I'd left the house and was living on my own, so I wonder if that was somehow emotionally scarring. I guess worry might be a more appropriate word than wonder. That, I think, would be a good thing to talk to a therapist about because, you know, nudity is one of those things where, you know, it can, it can be innocent, but it can also be weaponized. And um, I, think that would, I think that would be something um, talking with a therapist about would be, would be helpful. Um, and so then finishing the question, any positive experiences with the abuser? Uh, In terms of my parents and growing up in their pathologically cluttered house and with strange and strong ideologies, including about nudity, I still love them. I mean, they're still my parents, and I know how much they've done for me. I can remember that, so I would feel guilty now looking back on my childhood, which I'd previously thought of as idyllic, and pointing out all its flaws and all the ways it's damaged me, and it was wrong. And I would suggest... Don't worry, you don't have to say these things to your parent. You can process any anger or frustration you had privately with a therapist, with a, a close friend. It's getting those feelings out that matters, not you know, judging where on a scale your parents were from great to, to fucked up. Because that can also often be a distraction, thinking like, I'm going to arrive at some very clear idea that my parents were great or awful. And I think that can be a real distraction from uh, just the, the processing of the emotions. Darkest thoughts. I tend to be attracted to and lust for a fair fraction of my male professors slash teachers, and I could slash do sometimes um fantasize about being physically intimate with them, or rather them kind of being so attracted to me that they can't control themselves and they just have to have sex with me. And meanwhile, I really want that. But also, I have a boyfriend whom I love, and I don't at all want to be unfaithful to him, but I still have these other fantasies, and they can be pretty strong sometimes. Darkest Secrets. My first relationship when I lost my virginity. I was 19, and he was 55, and I was all for it at the time, and I was completely turned on and aroused, and I wanted it, and then in parentheses, I think. Um, You know the interesting thing about... uh, life and getting older is our perspective on things change. Uh, Maybe even the facts don't change, Um, but how we feel about things change. And that's, um, I think, an important thing to keep in in mind. Uh, and, And I also think that's why trying to grow as a person is so important because a lot of times we suddenly get clarity on something that we hadn't had before. 
You know, it wasn't until I was in a support group for my struggles with intimacy that I was finally able to look back at my childhood and go, whoa, that was completely fucked up. That was traumatizing. And then that helped me make sense of other things. So that's why I'm I'm just such a soapbox about people processing uh, things. Um, I think we've dealt with her uh, sexual fantasies. So um, I think I would just be repeating that by reading that section. Uh, what, if anything, do you wish for? I wish for clarity and understanding. I think if you just keep seeking and trying to grow and being good to yourself and taking care of yourself and understanding what your needs and your boundaries are, I think that'll come. But one thing I do know is we do not grow on an island by ourselves catastrophizing. Because <laughs> trust me, I have fucking done that and I still sometimes do that. Uh, have you shared these things with others? Um, I think I did share a bit of it with my current boyfriend, maybe even towards the beginning of our relationship, uh, in the parentheses, sexual relationship, since we had been close friends for a couple of years up till then. And that was not a great situation, actually. Uh, I told him that a lot of times when we're having sex, I used those fantasies to get myself over the edge to orgasm. And he felt super threatened by that. And it fueled his own feelings of inadequacy and disconnectedness. So we really had to work on that, and I had to really try hard to get those thoughts out of my head and focus more on the sex that I was actually, uh, that was actually happening in that moment, which took time and effort, and I'm still not sure I'll ever be completely free of defaulting back into letting my mind water, wander off into these incredibly attractive and seductive and arousing fantasies. Um, I think for a lot of us, we need that fantasy, uh, to reach orgasm. That's just the, the, you know, I've read many surveys by women who are staunch feminists who cannot orgasm unless they're imagining something degrading or abusive happening. And, you know, if that's not an example of somebody that that's just the facts of, what it takes to get them over the edge. But that doesn't mean that you can't be present with your boyfriend until that moment when you decide, all right, it's time to wrap things up. I'm going to think about that thing in my head so I can have an orgasm. But he doesn't have to, you know, it sounds like it didn't go well when you shared it with him. So um, I don't think it's wrong to keep that to yourself if that's the only thing that can bring you to orgasm. My two cents. Uh, this is an awful moment filled out by a guy who calls himself, uh, was this our last one? Oh, this is our last one. Uh, an awful moment filled out by a guy who calls himself 57 Donuts, because honestly, 56 is not enough. He writes, listen to you read surveys with my headphones on at work around the manly men while I cut lumber and build homes laughing with gut-wrenching compassion along with a stranger survey whose struggles are so far out that make me break out and giggle only to have the next survey resonate so hard with me that I cry uncontrollably and drop my hammer on my toe. I know I shouldn't wear Crocs at work, but they're so damn comfortable. Paul, fuck your feelings towards ugly, comfortable footwear. I love you. Thanks so much. Thank you for that. Oh, I can I tell you how much I love 
when somebody fills out a survey that is so the one to wrap up the podcast. It is, it, I, I truly feel like the presence of a higher power in my life when I'm going through the surveys and I get one of those because it's like, oh, I forget. The universe can help me. I'm not fighting it. It wants me to have a good time. Well, look at us. 115 minutes. Jumping back into it. If you're out there and you're stuck, never forget. I'm mean in a canoe. That's what I want you to remember. That all, you know, you're not alone. Fuck that. I want you to remember that I am a hulking rage with an oar in my hands. So if you ever come across me on a lake, turn the other way and path. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up.